Hello, I'm Nina Bracken, Web Committee Co-Chair for the American Thoracic Society's Nursing Assembly. It is my pleasure to introduce the Nursing Assembly's second podcast, Oxygen, There's Something in the Air, Supplemental Oxygen Prescription and Use Considerations. I'm delighted to be joined by three experts in the field, Dr. Min Ju, Susan Jacobs, and Edna Shattuck. Ms. Shattuck is a retired registered nurse and respiratory therapist. She's also a patient with COPD who, since her diagnosis in 2008, has been inspiring and educating others as a patient advocate on behalf of the COPD Foundation. In 2014, she was elected to the governing board of the COPD Patient-Powered Research Network. She is also the patient representative and a co-investigator for the BREATHE study at Johns Hopkins. Dr. Min Ju is an associate professor of medicine in the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care, Sleep, and Allergy at the University of Illinois at Chicago and a staff physician at the Jesse Brown VA Medical Center. She's the medical director of the Pulmonary Function Laboratory at the Jesse Brown VA Medical Center and University of Illinois Hospital and Health Sciences System. She's also the medical director of the Tobacco Treatment Center at UI Health. Susan Jacobs is a nurse coordinator and research nurse manager in the Advanced Lung Disease Program at Stanford University Medical Center, where her main focus is caring for patients with interstitial lung disease. She chairs the American Thoracic Society Nursing Assembly Program Planning Committee and has recently started an oxygen interest group to gather information and potential solutions related to the increasing number of patient and provider reported problems with home oxygen therapy. She is involved with patient advocacy issues within the Pulmonary Fibrosis Foundation as well as the LAM Foundation. Thank you all very much for joining us today. So, Dr. Ju, can you start by summarizing the evidence base behind supplemental oxygen for patients with resting hypoxemia? Sure. Um, and first, I'd like to thank you, Nina, for inviting me to this podcast. Oxygen therapy for patients who have severe resting hypoxemia is well established, especially in patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or COPD. Severe resting hypoxemia, as, as defined, is a partial pressure of oxygen in arterial blood, that's a PAO2 of less than or equal to 55 millimeters of mercury, or an oxygen saturation of less than or equal to 88% or a PaO2 ranging from 56 to 59 millimeters of mercury plus evidence of right heart strain and polycythemia. Now, this is the criteria that was used by the landmark Nocturnal Oxygen Therapy Trial, or the NOT group trial that was published in 1980, which was more than 30 years ago, which was a randomized controlled trial that evaluated continuous versus nocturnal, or essentially 24 hours versus 12-hour oxygen therapy in patients with COPD. Now, this study actually enrolled 203 patients, and they were randomized to continuous versus the 12-hour nocturnal oxygen therapy. They had a mean follow-up of 19 months, which was a relatively long follow-up period, and showed that the overall mortality in the nocturnal oxygen group was almost two times that in the continuous oxygen therapy group. Um, interestingly, less than a year later, in 1981, the Medical Research Council, or the MRC Working Party, published the results of another randomized control trial that they performed, which they enrolled 87 patients with COPD, this time with a PAO2 ranging from 40 to 60 millimeters of mercury, at rest, and they were randomized to 15 hours per day of oxygen therapy versus no oxygen. And again, this study showed a reduction in mortality in the oxygen group. 
Now, these two randomized controlled trials really created the foundation for the recommendation to prescribe continuous oxygen therapy in patients who have COPD with severe resting hypoxemia. And more interestingly, oxygen really was the first treatment that showed a reduction in mortality in this very high-risk patient population. And this was at a time when mortality in this group was as high or higher than 50% within a three-year period. And as you know, in 2011, the American Thoracic Society, in conjunction with the American College of Physicians, the American College of Chest Physicians, and ERS, published clinical practice guidelines for stable COPD, and the statement on the use of continuous oxygen therapy for patients with severe resting hypoxemia was given a strong recommendation and considered moderate quality evidence, um, really referring to these two randomized controlled trials. Great. Thank you very much for summarizing that. Um, Supplemental oxygen use seems to be a hot topic in respiratory medicine, and there is preliminary evidence that shows oxygen prescription documentation is severely lacking in the electronic health record. Susan, could you speak towards the lack of documentation or incomplete documentation in providers' notes, as well as the inappropriate use of oxygen for patients feeling short of breath versus hypoxemic? Yes. The the issue really relates to having the, you know, the end result is a delay in getting the oxygen set up to the patient. And the the uh, initial process for testing and getting that order placed and getting the delivery involves some very particular wording and paperwork um, known as the CMN or the uh, Certificate for Medical Necessity. And it's very important that the providers in the clinic setting are familiar with this and it's often the the, uh, home care provider, the GME provider, can be very helpful in providing you templates, uh, checklists, um, and forms that include the language that has to be included in order to get that order in. Um, so in our clinic, we've actually started using some kind of a, we call it a dot phrase. You know, you can create in your, for example, your electronic medical record, a template, so that every time a patient has this order, the correct wording and uh, testing requirements are automatically included. And it does include having the patient there in person, um, a face-to-face evaluation, and the documentation in the provider's notes of the symptoms of diagnosis, uh, that you want mobility, uh, oxygen to provide it for mobility, and that they will need this uh, for whatever duration, typically lifetime, but not always. And then the qualifying testing in the clinic, uh, this is where we get it gets tricky because if the patient does come in and the diagnosis is made that they have exertional hypoxemia and the patient leaves the clinic, then you have incomplete testing because you need to have the patient back in the clinic and test them again on oxygen and document the adequate um, levels in the actual prescription. And then the types of portable systems uh, need to be very clearly delineated, and a lot of this is also um, educating the patient on what's available to them, you know, assessing their lifestyle, how often are they leaving the house, what can they carry, pull or put over their shoulder. Um, And this process can be 
very laborious if not done, you know, correctly the first time. So we have found that a template really helps to expedite that. Um, the other problem we see is that patients are provided systems at times that aren't adequate. And I think with the lack of a certified respiratory therapist delivering these uh, systems, patients are not now tested in the home on the system that they were prescribed to receive. So they may appear in your clinic and be on a system that, in fact, was inadequate. Um, education includes the type of delivery, pulse versus continuous, for example. Um, patients aren't always clear that those two systems aren't the same. Two liters on pulse does not equal two liters on um, continuous flow. So having educational documents for the patient, having some kind of a template for the providers can really decrease the back and forth between the provider and the, uh, the DME company. Um, it's very, uh, otherwise it can delay, basically it delays delivery. And the challenge, of course, is getting appropriate equipment. And we've seen a big change uh, with the competitive bidding program and DME companies having cutbacks and reimbursement. Uh, this is a universal issue. We're seeing patients from all types of um, diseases reporting problems with not getting enough tanks, not getting adequate delivery. Um, I had a recent call with a public advisory roundtable with an ATS that represents you know, a multitude of different patient populations, and this seems to be um, a common theme. But the issue, of course, is that we need to document the problems um, in order to kind of get some better solutions to get better delivery systems. Our particular challenge is high flow. So to document in your notes the need for high flow for your patient uh, because they leave the house to exercise, socialize, travel, uh, work, uh, must be documented. And it's very challenging for us now to find uh, liquid systems that provide that high continuous flow in a portable uh, form. Um, but we need to advocate for our patients, and we can provide patients with uh, question uh, phone lines. There's a competitive bidding liaison line, we can provide patients with that information so that they can call and note issues that they're having. Because that's one of our concerns is that we really don't have a lot of data on the problems patients are experiencing. Um, the LAM Foundation did survey about 130 patients on oxygen, and about 30% of them reported problems in receiving adequate service. Um, so there's multiple issues around this uh, Getting the order right the first time, it impacts the patient, it delays their therapy, uh, it impacts the providers for our time, and the DME providers, you know, they're struggling to provide um, adequate uh, and inefficient care. Their model, of course, is to have what we call a non-delivery model where they're trying to decrease the amount of you know, delivery trips to that patient. It's a cost issue. So that's why sometimes patients are set up with systems that may not be ideal for their lifestyle. Um, so we really are working on that to get more data. Um, in terms of patients getting oxygen uh, that's not maybe physiologically indicated, I think that's part of managing uh, their educational process. Uh, we make sure all of our patients that need oxygen or are close have a, an oximeter. 
so that at home they can monitor their oxygen saturations. And we do educate them on the process and the sensations of breathlessness may not be related to hypoxemia. And they can kind of reassure themselves by checking their oxygen saturations. So I think that aspect of getting patients appropriate oxygen um, is really tied to educating them and providing them that that information, and many are very surprised to learn that. They feel if they're short of breath that their oxygen levels must be low. And in fact, simple education um, can really address that issue. So I hope I've uh, addressed all those questions in there. It's a very challenging um, issue. I think we're seeing more of it. Uh, there are some excellent resources. The uh, COPD Foundation has a supplemental oxygen guide. It's also supported by the LAM Foundation. It's on their website, and we actually give this to our patients. So I think having these kinds of materials also helps make this process a little more smooth so everyone gets the information up front. Great. And you're talking about the COPD Foundation. It's www.copdfoundation.org. Great. Thanks so much, Susan. That was very thorough. Can you, would you mind continuing on and, and speaking towards um, the time frame in which a provider should reassess the oxygen needs of someone who is, say, newly started on oxygen after hospital discharge for a COPD exacerbation? Well, I would assume that on a, for any patient um, after a hospital discharge, I think the standard of care is that they should be followed up and seen in an outpatient clinic setting. So at every clinic visit, just like the medications, uh, we reassess their oxygen. And in fact, the oxygen should be on the patient's medication list. And the details of that oxygen prescription should be reassessed at every visit uh, at rest and with exertion, which includes walking the patient up and down the hall or a six-minute walk or exercise oximetry, whatever is standard for your institution. So at every clinic visit and post-hospital discharge, I would say the standard is that patient should be followed up within a few weeks and seen as an outpatient just to reassess their oxygen needs and to see what equipment. And we often want them to bring that equipment in so that we can test them on the equipment they're using at home. Uh, so every visit and then post-discharge, I would think within a few weeks uh, for anybody who's had an acute exacerbation requiring hospitalization. Thank you. And Edna, as someone who has been on both sides of the healthcare team, first as a nurse and now as a patient with COPD, can you speak to the considerations clinicians should keep in mind when prescribing supplemental oxygen and how supplies and equipment can significantly affect a patient's lifestyle? I certainly can, and I'd like to thank Susan so very much for her talk. Um, I wish every program around the country could be copied like yours. Um, you've just done a, a phenomenal job of explaining things and having patients come back, seeing them again, what they go through. It was just um, everything that I thought I was going to address as well. So um, forgive me if we kind of trip over each other a little bit, but I'd, I'd like to start my talk by saying I think that the most important consideration when speaking with patients about supplemental oxygen is to be compassionate and sensitive to their fears. Even to patients like me who understood that COPD was progressive and that sooner or later 
I'd need to use oxygen, like I'm doing right now, when reality set in and it was my turn, I was totally devastated. If possible, prior to discussing oxygen, the healthcare team should be aware of a patient's circumstances. Do they have a caregiver, a family member, or a friend who can help them through this new challenge? And are those people prepared to know what it's going to be like? Some equipment requires a degree of physical strength. Can they manage it? What's their home environment like? Are there smokers living with them? Do they have problems with mobility? Being aware of the day-to-day issues that patients face might give everyone a different perspective on the types of systems most suitable for a specific patient and their ability to use them successfully. Currently, you know that there are two types of oxygen therapy systems, stationary and portable. As the name implies, stationary systems are meant to stay in one place because they're usually large and very heavy. They include concentrators, compressed gas, and liquid oxygen. Stationary oxygen concentrators take in room air and filter out the other gases to produce nearly pure oxygen. Because concentrators are electrically powered, a backup system, usually a compressed gas tank, is advised in case of a power outage. Portable oxygen concentrators are charged electrically when not in use. They're lightweight and battery-powered, making them suitable for outdoor activities. Many have been approved by the FAA and can be taken on a plane when you have extra batteries along with you to cover the length of a trip. Under high pressure, oxygen's compressed into gas comes in a variety of tank sizes, the largest being big, heavy tanks that need to be well secured. Smaller tanks are the green ones you typically see people pulling behind them on a cart with wheels, and the very smallest can fit into a pouch with a strap to carry over your shoulder. When oxygen is cooled, it becomes liquid and is stored at home in special containers called reservoirs. Reservoirs are used to fill smaller containers that offer long use and portability, even for patients that require high liter froze. However, as Susan addressed, in many areas, it's difficult to obtain liquid oxygen. If you think that a patient might benefit from this type of system, it's best to check first with local suppliers to make sure that it's available. Oxygen from all these different systems are delivered through nasal cannulas, dual-pronged tubes that are directly attached to most portable systems. When patients use the larger stationary systems, oxygen flows through tubing that comes in multiple lengths and ultimately connects to a nasal cannula or a face mask. The length of the tubing should only be as long as necessary for a patient's mobility, for example, getting from one end of the house to the other, and reducing the risk of tripping and an accidental fall. Tubing should be changed every 6 to 12 months, cannulas replaced approximately once a month, which sometimes can be a prob- problematic because due to the cost, and the filters on the concentrator should be cleaned weekly. Many play- patients, including myself, have more than one type of oxygen equipment. I have a portable concentrator that you might be hearing right now that I use when I'm 
indoors and not tethered to my continuous flow nighttime oxygen concentrator. Then when I'm traveling, when I'm on a treadmill or to use at night, I also have a mid-sized compressed gas tank in case of a power outage. Great, Edna, thanks very much. Dr. Ju, how can healthcare providers address patients who continue to smoke when they are newly prescribed supplemental oxygen? I think that's a really important question because being a pulmonologist, seeing a lot of patients who have COPD, a lot of my patients are still smoking. I think there is an ethical component because we are giving them a drug that could potentially cause more harm than not. But I think that Edna really hit on the point that when initiating oxygen therapy, there should be a strong focus on education, and the education should include expectations and also the risks and harms in the combination of oxygen therapy and smoking because oxygen is a drug. Every drug has adverse effects, and it's a balance between the benefits that the patient will actually achieve from the drug versus the potential harms. Now, in my patients who continue to smoke, I give them a uh, very detailed uh, session on what to expect as far as when they should use the medication, when they should use the oxygen, when they shouldn't use the oxygen, especially if they are continuing to smoke. Of course, before we all do this, we encourage that they stop smoking to the best of our ability, but we know that a lot of patients, if they're not willing to stop smoking, then the discussion really um, isn't going to be that helpful for that patient. So at a minimum, we tell them that they absolutely cannot be smoking anywhere near oxygen, neither can their family members, um, and that if they are going to smoke and they can't promise that they won't be smoking while they're using oxygen therapy, then we document that and we strongly discourage prescribing oxygen for those patients. I know there's a lot of discrepancies um, in the way that we practice. Some people feel very strongly that anybody who smokes, they shouldn't get oxygen. Um, but I believe for those, especially with resting hypoxemia in patients who have COPD because the evidence is so strong that it improves mortality, we should do all we can to make sure that they have the opportunity to use the oxygen and to work around the smoking as best we can to ensure some safety, but also to try and get the therapy to them if, if at all possible. Now, I think for patients who are non-adherent to the oxygen and clearly continue to smoke and put themselves at risk, um, then it is our ethical obligation to not provide oxygen for those patients for safety reasons. Great, thanks for speaking towards that. Can you also uh, tell us the evidence base for prescribing oxygen in people with only exertional hypoxemia? Then you may be on mute. I was on mute, there you go. Um, <laughs> there has been a focus in the past decade, longer than that, but clinically um, in the trial setting more in the past decade or so, regarding oxygen therapy for patients with moderate hypoxemia and or normoxemia or normal oxygen saturation at rest, and then with oxygen desaturation with exertion or hypoxemia with exertion. 
Unfortunately, we don't have great evidence for this patient population. There are no large published randomized controlled trials showing mortality benefits in this population. However, we prescribe oxygen for this group with oxygen desaturation with exertion only, and it is reimbursed by CMS. Um, there was a retrospective review of patients meeting this criteria of oxygen desaturation alone without severe resting hypoxemia. Um, this retrospective review came from the patients enrolled into the National Emphysema Treatment Trial, which was the NET trial, which did not show a difference in mortality for patients who received oxygen if they only had oxygen desaturation. Again, this was a retrospective review. And there have been numerous, numerous studies um, with relatively small sample sizes, most of them generally in the 20 to 40 patient range, evaluating various outcomes that included symptoms such as dyspnea, exercise tolerance, and quality of life, but again, not considered conclusive based on the small sample sizes. And really because of this, um, this lack of evidence, the National Heart Lung Blood Institute funded a multi-center randomized controlled trial to evaluate the effectiveness of supplemental oxygen therapy for this group for patients with COPD considered to have moderate resting hypoxemia, which was defined as an oxygen saturation of 89 to 93%, or normoxemia, normal oxygen saturation at rest, and oxygen desaturation with exertion. Um, this study will have over 1,000 patients and has actually completed recruitment, but the results are um, yet to be published. But I'm hopeful that the results of this study will really provide some guidance for this patient population. Um, and really going back to that idea of risk versus benefits, we really need to know the benefits in this patient population to assess that um, balance. Great. Thanks very much, Dr. Ju. Coming back to you, Edna, from a patient perspective, how do you think we can best promote patient adherence to supplemental oxygen? Well, I tell patients the importance of adherence to supplemental oxygen is to think of it as a gift. It provides the extra oxygen that many of us need because we have low levels in our bloodstream. It can improve our quality of life, reduce the strain on our hearts, reduce our shortness of breath, and can help us stay active. That said, it's tough to get used to, especially when you find yourself at home with all this equipment and tubing that you're distributed delivered. You can be overwhelmed and forget most of what you thought you learned when, in fact, you might have been too stressed to learn much of anything at all. COPD patients should know that they are not alone. If they have a phone or an internet connection, there are people like them who've had the same struggles they are having and are there to help them. By calling the COPD Foundation's helpline, patients and caregivers can ask questions, get advice, and request materials that they can refer to whenever they want. When they call, they'll be speaking with people who are patients and caregivers themselves, who've received special training and are well qualified to address their questions. In addition, the Foundation has launched a website called 360 Social. It's a peer-to-peer -peer support group that lets you write in questions 
and get answers in a matter of minutes. New patients should understand that no question is foolish or unimportant, that we all learn from each other, and that we are paying back whenever we can help and empower new patients to best manage their COPD. Thanks, Edna. I think that's that's great. Thanks for providing those those websites and those uh, patient advocacy groups. I think that's very important to share for every clinician to share with their patients the resources that are available. I want to thank each of you for taking the time to address these issues. I think when we've we've really touched on the tip of the iceberg when it comes to issues surrounding supplemental oxygen use. I also want to note that this podcast will be posted on the ATS website. Thanks very much for joining us today and we hope you'll continue to listen at thoracic.org.